From Hong Kong, this is Mea Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based on the Postmortem Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. I'm Jeffrey Brewer, and today we talk to Jean Lim, founder and CEO of Nama Institute, with advocates, a higher wisdom to living, leading, and innovating. She's the former CEO and CMO of Hanson Robotics, an AI and robotics company known for Sophia, a social humanite robot. She's also a startup advisor, angel investor, and career marketeer. Welcome, Jean. Hello, Jeffrey. Jean, tell me, how did you, and I know this is an interesting and relevant answer, but how did you end up in startups? Okay, so um, the funny thing is, the first time I went to a startup conference was at the postmortem conference that you organize. I just found that out, that you organize um, in 2015. So that was my first um, encounter with startup founders and also the whole startup um, ecosystem. Uh, let me apologize for that then, okay? <laughs> it's good. So um, at the conference, I met um, a gentleman by the name of Derek Quick. So he was the motivation uh, speaker at that conference. So I went up to him and I, I said, uh, Derek, I'm new to this community. I'm new to startups. I want to be an angel investor. Can you teach me? So he kind of looked at me and half smiled, you know, had a kind of a knowing smile. And he said, let's have a coffee later. So we did that. And, you know, probably um, about a couple of weeks later, and he sat down and told me a lot of horror stories about what could go wrong when you invest in startups. You know, people could shut their company down and run away to Singapore with your money and so forth. But of course, he also had a positive message. There's a lot of quality startups there, a lot of passionate founders who can um, do a lot of good things in the world and, you know, disrupt um, old, old uh, business processes and so forth. So he encouraged me to be more careful in looking to startups, but, you know, definitely it, it was a good uh, message that he delivered. Great to hear that uh, our conference uh, gets people into startups. That's one of the goals, actually, of the, of the conference. So great to hear that. So you were at our conference. How did you, of course, for us, also very important, how did you get to know of that conference? Like, who brought that to your attention? Okay, so um, a friend of mine who actually was very... Um, active in startups. He himself is an angel investor. He invested in um, a company called Hello Asia years and years ago. It was the turn of the, you know, actually in 2000, one of the first companies um, to set up in Asia, in the internet company. So he um, basically asked me to attend that conference because he said you could learn so much from, you know, what founders learned in their journey. Okay, that's uh, great to hear, and that's uh, a great boost and promotion for our uh, <laughs> conference. You had a coffee with Derek. Uh, I know Derek pretty well, and uh, he drink. He makes a lot of coffee meetings for a guy <laughs> that doesn't drink coffee at all. That's right. What was after those horror stories, but also the the normal stories? What was next at that point for you? Because at that point, as I correctly, you were a marketing officer at the corporate? Well, I've actually just left the corporate world. So I spent over two decades um, in companies, mostly in technology marketing. And so um, I was pretty much ready to uh, retire. But I, I, of course, I still wanted um, to get into um, 
entrepreneurship and you know the innovation and so forth. I was still interested in that, and which is the reason why I decided to be an angel investor. So after the coffee meeting, um, what I learned from that is it's probably stupid for me to be an individual angel investor without any knowledge to just go in and plunk money into a startup. So I um, then joined um, this ecosystem called Investable that was started by Nest. And so they uh, basically are a um, small angel fund. And then they also provide a platform for you to invest as an angel investor as well. And so I went to uh, a few uh, pitch sessions and then I uh, invested in a startup called Play2, which is a, a company that develops um, a game that you could control with um, a neural headset to control the game. And it improves the focus and concentration of kids who have ADHD. So that's how I started. I'm totally on you that if you start out as an angel investor that you have no experience in that at all, then yeah. I would say do it together or get somebody who's done it before many, many times and learn from that. I started out, I, I thought I could do it myself. I paid a high price for that. Actually, at that point, uh, I often say it would have been cheaper for me to do an MBA. And at that point, for the same money, I probably <laughs> now would be able to make a discounted uh, cash flow uh, calculation. But I didn't do that. I did some angel investments and most of them went wrong. But took my learnings from that and I'm now a little bit more frugal with my money in, uh, in angel investments. So how did that first investment turn out? It was okay. Um, so the company is still around. It has a really strong vision. It was started by three women who had ADHD kids. So it definitely has the passion and um, the, the vision. Uh, I think the challenge was um, the headset vendor did not deliver a quality product and it was very expensive to develop a game. Um, actually, these days, and also very difficult to get distribution. So I think the company is still um, kind of going through a pivot, um, trying to uh, find its place and how to actually have a more efficient way of distributing the products. And at that point, you got the gist of it, I guess? No, of course not. So, um, so silly me. So I, I wanted to do things like quickly and efficient. I'm an impatient person. So I um, basically went to another group, um, AngelVest. It's a uh, group of angels, and also they also have an angel fund. Um, and they had a demo day that night. So I went there, and there was uh, probably about six startup founders who pitched. And the one who came last, who was actually worst in pitching, um, was the one I invested in. Um, it, it was an, at that point, it was a different company. Um, it wasn't an AI company. Later on, it pivoted into an AI company. Um, but I, I think um, the reason is because, uh, so after the demo day, so the founder would leave the room, shut the door, and the investors would then raise their hand if they're interested in that, um, that startup. And so after he presented, it was a pretty bad a presentation he shut the door and then there were a lot of people who raised their hand and I was looking at it you know there must be something there um, and then I looked into what he was offering he was offering a um, email summary summation service and I kind of like that because I think email um, needs disrupting so I invested in him 
I'm well aware also with uh, with AngelVest from both sides. One of my first investment pitches was for AngelVest in, I think it was Shanghai or Beijing. Okay. At that point, they did not have a Hong Kong chapter yet. So then at that point, you were started to angel invest. Yes. My personal experience is that you have to do a lot of them. And of course, quite often also is being said that an angel investor is nice, but don't expect to be able to get a return on investment to put your kids through school from that. They always tell me that, you know, expect like if you invest in 10 or 20, expect like pretty much all except one of them to survive. And I think that's a good statistic already. If one out of 20 or one out of 10 survives and thrives, you're in, you know, a good place. So far, because we're already talking now probably what, like six years, seven years of angel investment? Yeah, about five years. How is it turning out for you? Um, it's okay. There are a couple of companies that have good potential. Um, so I also invested in a company that um, manufactures a health patch based on traditional Chinese medicine. Um, so that was actually in, you know, me being an individual investor who knows um, a board member. And so that company also pivoted. And um, there was uh, a company that was in e-cigarettes, which I invested in. Um, so there are a few companies that I um, invested in throughout that uh, those two years, 2015 and 2016. But in the meantime, besides angel investment, you also obviously at that point uh, wind up as a CMO of Hanson Robotics. How did you came about? Because you already said I was out of corporate. That's right. So that was... A pure accident. Again, accident. Or destiny. <laughs> I don't know which. Um, so the board member who is at the um, games company one day had a coffee with me, another coffee meeting. And he said, you know, um, actually, I'm a board member of this very interesting robotics company. It's a robotics startup. And they're looking for a CMO. And he said if he was like, um, you know, younger, uh, maybe 30 years Earlier, he would have taken that job. And so he asked me whether I was interested. And I said, no, like robotics startup? No, 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 thank you. And he said, no, no, what do you mean? Um, and I said, well, maybe 20 years ago, I would be interested, but not now. He said, no, you have to meet David Hansen. So I met him at a, a conference in the science park. And he just blew me away. Um, he had this energy and vision to change the world for the better. And the robots that he have are so engaging, so interactive. So for some reason, then I, I signed up full-time as a CMO, which surprised me and I guess surprised the people that I was talking to, you know, in the startup ecosystem because I wasn't supposed to um, be in corporate anymore. And then, yeah, you were uh, the CMO of that company, uh, Artificial Intelligence, you had no experience in, in artificial intelligence. What was the challenge beside of the, the passion that you saw from the Hansen? What did you see for yourself saying like, hey, like I can add value there and then I see this in the future coming? What was it? So I went in, of course, without experience in artificial intelligence and I, I don't actually like sci-fi. That was the first thing that David said, like, have you read this sci-fi book? Have you read that sci-fi book? No, no. The only thing that I've ever seen was probably Star Wars, right? <laughs> the movie. Um, but then the way the company develops the products is really coming from a place where there's a convergence of art, science, and technology. It's not just about the engineering. 
of the product. It's about how the product engages with people, um, you know, how people actually um, experiences the product. And so um, in a way, it is more, to me, it's a, a more of a, a marketing project than it was an engineering project. Um, and so that was how we approached it. Basically, we looked at the user experience and the art of it um, and developed the product according to those um, standards. You also, at one point, became the CEO. Yeah, that's right. So after about three and a half years of being the CMO, um, I was um, concerned that we haven't yet been able to commercialize the product. So I came up with some suggestions, you know, how could we actually fast track it? Um, how do we actually get revenue in the meantime? And David um, and I had a really good relationship. Um, and, you know, there's a good uh, trust between us. So at that point, he said, well, Gene, you have commercial experience. Do you want to take my job? And I said, no, no, I, I definitely don't want to take your job. And I guess after a lot of back and forth, then um, I said yes. So that's when I actually became the CEO of the company to redefine a commercial strategy. And after that, what was the reason why you left or did you find somebody else that could take it over from you? Or what, what was the story there? Yeah, so we hired a gentleman by the name of Amit uh, from SoftBank Robotics, who has commercial experience in scaling social robots. Um, and so I um, worked with him and David to define a strategy of building a software platform of commercializing it um, and and then I think everything was sort of in place um, so we have sort of a good um, relationship and I, I think we have a good business plan that's very commercially viable and um, at that point so about seven months later uh, sorry eight eight months later then I said okay so I think we're sort of all set and I think I want to step down because I wanted to move on to my next thing. And the other reason is after working with AI and robotics for four years, I found out that, that before they become fully autonomous and we get to a stage where we're actually outsourcing most decisions to them and they become a black box and we won't be able to explain their decisions before that happens. We actually need humans to be more enlightened because who is the AI learning from? They're learning from data. They're learning from our behavior. They're not just learning from our intentions because people could have the best intentions, but we, not we don't necessarily behave in a good way. You know, look at all this issue with the environmental um, issues, um, poverty, inequality. There's a lot of um, repercussions from our bad behavior. And the AI is learning from all that. So. Um, I feel that for the rest of my, my life, hopefully, that I wanted to spend my time facilitating uh, human wisdom, starting with myself. So at that point, indeed, learnings there, and you decided to set up uh, the NAMA Institute. Yes. What does that entail? Yeah, so the NAMA Institute has um, basically two prongs. One is the advocacy. So I went through... Um, a process where I wanted to solve a problem um, that's worthwhile, that nobody is actually solving effectively. So I looked through all the you know, sustainable development goals from UN. And um, at the end of it, I found out that there's actually a lot of effort 
that's trying to resolve all these things, like environmental issues, um, poverty, education, access, and so forth. But at the end of it, what is the root cause of all these problems is actually a mindset issue. So I wanted to work on elevating um, people's wisdom, starting again, starting with myself, um, and to bring in the uh, ancient wisdom that has been around for, for years and years and to make it um, something that is practical and that could be applied to business. So this is what I want to do with, with NAMA. So on the advocacy side, um, I wanted to uh, have a way to communicate the, the wisdom from ancient teachings. Um, so I'm going to uh, actually do it through creative media, uh, fiction, and it's just sort of merging arts and uh, storytelling, art storytelling and business. And so I'm writing a book, a fictional book on it, and also looking at doing some creative media, you know, maybe uh, short, short films and so forth to advocate it. Um, on the second part of it is obviously uh, we need a solution, right? We need a solution for people to learn wisdom. So the problem I think before was that wisdom is this fuzzy thing that we think, oh, only like wise old men in the past knows, knows um, this and we're sort of not there yet or we can never be there. But um, actually, there's a lot of research done on wisdom. What is wisdom? So I came across a lot of very practical definitions of what wisdom is. And a lot of it is the social behavior, you know, uh, be pro-social and looking after the uh, greater good for all. And those are the principles that's always been around in the ancient teachings, except we were kind of removed from that in our modern life. So what I wanted to do is use technology to facilitate our learning of wisdom. Um, because nowadays, uh, people talk about quantified self, right? Uh, about how you improve your fitness and health by tracking everything. So why can't we use that approach and track the uh, learning of wisdom? Because um, it can be quantified in, in very specific ways. So rather than outsourcing our wisdom to AI and robots, I would rather that we spend time elevating human wisdom. Do you use that concept when you advise startups? And like how, for instance, can you explain to me at that point when a session with some founders of a startup and they're asking you for advice, how does a session like that look like? How do you go to work with that? I don't have a formal program to advise startup. I think it really depends on where the startup is, um, what business problem they're trying to solve and the founder, you know, the founder's mentality. Um, at the end of it, I, I think the important thing is to go back to who they are. I've heard a lot of startups who say, oh, I want to be the next Uber of X, or I want to be Steve Jobs of Y, or Elon Musk of Z, right? Um, which is all fine. They're all like very inspirational success stories. But the thing is, um, I think everybody has their own DNA and it's not necessarily useful if you try to copy somebody else. You could learn from somebody else to a certain extent, but I think um, startup founders need to understand who they are at the core and then um, take these learnings as a, a reference and not you know, try to copy them. I've actually heard of a startup founder who says, oh, Elon Musk said that he 
um, actually, when he has no money, he actually slept on the couch. You know, he put all his money into his startups, and then he slept on his friend's couch. Um, so I'm going to do that with my money. And he had a, like a newborn baby, and he had no friends that really, you know, have a house that's big enough to have a couch for him. So, you know, it's just um, not very realistic. I can get there a little bit in the sense that some people are too comfortable and uh, to actually feel mm-hmm. I don't I don't want the motivation or the to get the grit into doing something. I can understand that a little bit that you want to make yourself uncomfortable and at that point that motivates you to to do something. I can mm-hmm. get that uh, gist of a uh, of a founder indeed, but. Okay, it's indeed in that sense a an interesting viewpoint. For me, quite often I ask a founder why, mm. and that's not yeah because something is broken. No, why? Why you? Why do you, in particular, you as a person, mm-hmm. want to do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then quite often, especially with uh, young founders, yeah, you find out that the motivation sometimes doesn't always justify the goal. Right. And yeah, then at that point, uh, it's quite interesting to see founders justifying themselves why they do it. While at that point, of course, the, the, the fundamentals are, are, are different. And uh, yeah, that's, that's something that I find very interesting. And that's probably also for you at that point that you're trying to find out the motivation, why things are happening with that founder and why they want to solve that. Right. And, and I really agree that it's important to ask why. Because a lot of times what we see in the media is the external, right? Um, it's, it's not often that we get into sort of the, the heart and mind of a founder who's successful. A lot of times it's like how much money um, was the exit and, you know, all, all those things that are external. Um, so I, I think it's really important to ask more than just why. Ask five whys, why they want to do it. And then um, that also gets them to think about things a little bit more um, because a, lo- a lot of times then they would have an epiphany oh actually maybe it's not about this it's actually about that and maybe I should go that direction yeah it's always uh, always also great to see them start thinking and you say like hey you know you're going to do this the next 10 to 15 years right mm-hmm. are you willing to give up the next 10 to 15 years on this idea right because then they start realizing oh Wait a minute, I thought I would be getting an exit in three yeah, to four years, exactly. uh, a multi-billion dollar exit. Right. Uh, no, those are usually at that point the the extremes. Yes. And that's not the median. Right. Definitely not. So interesting way of looking and advising companies from that uh, perspective, not only mm-hmm. about how you're going to make money and did you have your customer segment right, et cetera. So. And also the fundamentals. Um, you're not creating, so I, uh, I try to let them know that they're not creating a pitch deck just to pitch to investors on a demo day. The pitch deck is a form of communication based on a business plan. You know, maybe you, you don't need to write it out. Now, nowadays, people use the pitch deck as a business plan, which is fine. But um, it has to be thought of it that way. It has to make sense as a, um, you know, a business that you run for 10 years, like you said, right? It's not just for one demo day. Oh, correct. I also work with uh, students at HKU. I teach at HKU Biomedical Science Department, where I, at that point, work with students. Mm-hmm. And then I always say, okay, let's start with the business model canvas. Mm-hmm. And then based upon everything what you fill in there, you can make the best pitch deck 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there is because all the information in your pitch deck, that information is in your business model canvas. Yeah. And your business model canvas is not a static document. Right. It's you have different versions of that. Right. So I always at that point let them fill out the business model canvas completely and let them think about those kind of things. Right. But all these things need to come out of a place where there's an intention to execute it, right? It's not just a form for you to fill in. Um, which is sometimes, you know, the case with some sort of new younger founders that, oh, these are like ten forms that I need to fill in and I get the investment money and then I could fly. But in the meantime, you are still, I guess, working at Handsome Robotics uh, doing angel investments? Yes, I was. Can you give an example or, or, or pick an example that in hindsight that wasn't the best decision that you made at that point because there were already signs and what was the signs and what were, what was the result of that? Right. Okay. Um, so there was an investment. It was the healthcare patch company. I could talk about it because I already shut that company down <laughs> as a board member. Um, so I like the founder. He was um, very uh, modest and he was a lab rat. And I like that. You know, he was very much into traditional Chinese medicine um, and he looked like Superman. <laughs> he had a bit of a charisma. So I invested in that company without knowing anything about his um, business skills or commercial skills. So afterwards, the problem then, it's it's to do with commercialization. You know, when he gets out of the lab, how to actually take it to market? And then um, he got completely stuck there. And so we were trying to bring in a uh, CEO, and he didn't like that CEO. So he, we said, okay, you bring in your own CEO. So he brought in a CEO. And because that CEO is very commercially minded, they didn't get along at all. It was like a big fallout. And then so um, we were, the board members, including me, were left to clean up the mess. And how, what were the steps to, to clean up? And why did it go wrong I can understand that it goes wrong. Right. Commercial, technical people, etc. Almost my whole working life, I've been on the bridge between technical and commercial. <laughs> right. Uh, as you know, technical people can build something, but it's yeah not viable to sell. Right. Uh, or salespeople can sell something, but it's not technically viable to make. Mm-hmm. And on, on that bridge, uh, I can definitely understand that. But mm-hmm. can you explain a little bit more what the dynamics were? Why did that yeah go wrong between a... At that point, I guess, technical founder and a very commercial CEO. Yeah, I think the people dynamics matter a lot. Um, You know, if without people dynamics, if people work together, you know, a lot of problems can be solved. But because there are uh, a ego, ego battle, like, you know, I'm the founder and therefore I should know best. You know, you're the hired in CEO and therefore you listen to me kind of thing. Right. And obviously that leads to a lot of um uh, toxic, uh, toxic relationship, and um, and decisions were not made with um, objectivity, and so uh, I think there was several long wrong decisions that were made um, that the company could not recover from because it's very costly. And what did you learn from that? Like, what what would you, in hindsight, now do differently if you would see or maybe at that point recognize same similar situation? Yeah, I think um, after investing in in several startups, I would definitely spend a lot more time with the founder to understand who they are as people, right? Not just their vision, 
which sounds always sounds really great, and not just their skill set, but also who they are as a person. You know, whether they are willing to take feedback, whether they are defensive. You know, if you kind of give them comment, um, whether they can work with people, um, whether they bring people together or uh, bring people apart, um, and how they how they interact with teams. So. You know those kind of are those things are really important in the effectiveness of a um, CEO and a especially a founder who is also a CEO. I understand that from an angel investor perspective. On the other end, from a founder's perspective, mm-hmm. if you're doing a FFF phase or pre-seed and you're raising, I don't know, three hundred thousand US dollars, mm-hmm. and so that means you probably have, I don't know, ten angel investors. That mm-hmm. means you. And if all those angel investors have the same mindset, spending time with the founder, then at that point, the founder has to spend at least a couple of weeks with all those separate angel investors to do exactly the same thing. How would you, at that point, advise a founder to deal with that? Because I can understand that uh, you want to do that, but it's also, yeah, at that point, for the founder, almost impossible to do that with every single angel investor. So I guess one practical way is to get on one of those um, platforms, right? An ecosystem which has sort of the lead investor or the lead angel, and then everybody just trusts that person and then invest. Um, the other way, which was done with a couple of the startups that I invested in, because I asked too many questions about the business, not about the person, but about the business. Um, they were very polite and they gave me time, but then at the end, it was a little bit too much and I kind of knew that. So they sent the board member or some other person or, or an angel investor invested in them. And I was more than willing to spend time with them because they actually um, have stake in this company and they can objectively tell me how the founder is like. And which is a valuable piece of information. And from a corporate perspective, you, you've been in corporate most of your working mm-hmm. life. Now you work a lot with startups. Mm-hmm. There are probably more people out there in corporate that might want to do something similar. Mm-hmm. What would be your major advice points for people listening that say like, hey, I, I'm now in corporate. I either want to start a startup or I want to start doing angel investments in startup. What, what would be your most, the most interesting point that you think that should people know? Well, I guess the first thing is spend a lot of time researching in it, you know, attend conferences like the failure, not the, the postmortem conference, um, um, participate in the ecosystem, attend some demo days, and just get familiar with the process, get familiar with the people, um, and then just build a network first before jumping into it. Um, I guess in hindsight, that would be what I would do. Instead of jumping into it, I would spend probably um, nine months to a year just um, getting my feet wet with the ecosystem. I would add to that is maybe at that point, take a company that you see in the beginning, Mm -hmm. don't invest in it, Mm -hmm. but keep tabs on it. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, what if I invested in that Mm -hmm. company? And how is it at that point doing now Mm -hmm. and what could i have learned from that sure so that's that's quite often an advice that i give to somebody who wants to become an angel investor at that point i would say just pick like two or three companies that you might think of now to invest in Mm -hmm. don't invest in it but just keep in taps on them Mm -hmm. and 
ask them to be on their mentor list with mentor updates or with their maybe even at that point get their investor updates Mm -hmm. and say that you're still interested but not now yet Mm -hmm. and at that point you could see already how that process go it's like when you do stock trading right there the accounts allow you to do like a play play trading like just pretend to be trading and see what the results look like um something like that excellent advice yes it's really good and for now what what is your thesis what is your goal in angel investment now are you still actively angel investing or are you now more focused on the 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 non-profit business nama institute Okay, so I'm still investing, uh, but I'm approaching it in a more uh, indirect way. So I've just joined um, an ecosystem called Our Crowd, which started off investing in Israeli technology companies. And I, I'm more comfortable with that because I've seen a lot of Israeli you know, startups, they have wonderful technology, but it's very hard to kind of go through a process of due diligence with each one of them. So this company has a very good track record. So basically, I piggyback on them to invest. So I don't need to spend a lot of time on it. So therefore, now I spending more time on um, writing the fiction no novel and also setting up the uh, the uh, nonprofit. Sounds very interesting. Is there a piece of advice that you often hear that you actually don't agree with? Probably two. One is fake it till you make it. So a lot of people attribute it to Steve Jobs. Um, I, I worked in Apple for about seven years as a product manager. And um, I think people don't really understand the r- rigorous um, process that it has, you know, because it has such a uh, charismatic founder that seems to be sort of all over the place, but actually has a very rigorous process. So when it announces a product, um, then it already has the process and the vision and the strategy in place to make it. So it's not like what some startups are advised to do, which is, oh, you know, you don't have the product, doesn't matter, fake it, um, and then get the money and make it. I, I think it's a too too simpl- simplified. What's the most valuable advice that what's ever given to you? Um, so do you know that book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F asterisk CK? <laughs> I don't know that book. I think that is a really good advice. It actually took me many years to understand the value value of not listening to what people say and what they think, not caring about what they think, um, because you know yourself best. And I think um, the most important thing is for you to be a better you and to basically follow that rather than follow somebody else's journey that's uh, indeed a very good advice i'll uh, i'll look up the book uh, later you probably don't need it you just need to execute on the title and that that's it okay uh, that's a very short form of that book indeed if there's one thing you want people to take away from this talk what is it that life is short and you should really be true to yourself and not, um, you know, because I think money is important. And in a lot of accelerators, people talk about how to grow big and disrupt the market and so forth. It's all about like money and economic value, right? But at the end of it, what do you do with the money? You, you, a lot of people become philanthropists, right? But life is short. You know, I think nowadays there's, um, it's possible to do both at the same time. 
to make a difference in the world and, and make money. There's nothing wrong with making money, but you have to create value as well. I want to thank you for your uh, valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's, it was great talking to you. For the listeners, although the rating system of podcast is hideous, if you like this Mea Cooper series, you can rate this podcast with five stars as a motivation for the makers. We also want to thank Miso Crowdbrain in Hong Kong for being the venue sponsor of this episode. And also thanks to Copy Ventures for making this series possible. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Normally I would say go out and build something meaningful. But with this COVID situation, I would say just go and build something meaningful. Thank you.